Welcome back to Protean Pirate Radio, where we pirates help you navigate the uncharted waters of end-stage capitalism. I'm your host and democratically elected, instantly recallable captain, Mel B., and these are my first mates, Stephen and Kyle. Say hi. Hi. Howdy. Hello. Today, we are joined by Abner Haugi, editor-in-chief of Left Coast Right Watch. Abner, how do you, do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your work, and Left Coast Right Watch. Hello, Habibis. Um, yeah, so uh, our outlets, we basically cover fascists and fascist adjacent movements um, and just right-wing extremism in general. Uh, yeah, it's all, everything we do is like completely free and accessible to the public we don't paywall anything. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Right on. Cool. Um, how many folks work with you at the Left Coast Right Watch? Uh, I can't disclose that exactly, but I can tell you that they're hey. the most attractive people Hell working yeah. in journalism. <laughs> we, we can also uh, we can also substantiate this. Um, I, I would like to personally substantiate that based off of uh, no evidence. Everyone, everyone's just, got those you know, vibes, vibes, those really good vibes. Right. Mm. Kyle, you want to take the next question since you're particularly curious about it? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so for those who are maybe unfamiliar with California's far-right political presence and how in some ways it's indicative of the, you know, sort of, a, a certain kind of far right formation on the on the uh, left coast, as it's called. But you know, how would you describe the types of individuals and groups and political ideologies that you encounter? Would you uh, would there be any sort of way to compare them and contrast them with other sort of far right groups people are familiar with? Um, you know, I'd say uh, right wing extremism in the United States, like often takes on really regional flavors like um yeah. you know you have a whole constellation of stuff i'm very i'm still not that familiar with in like the the southern southeastern part of the united states the south or whatever it's called um in uh, on the west coast you kind of have these two these two i guess broader regions like You've kind of got like California, Nevada-ish, and um, you kind of have um, the Pacific Northwest, which is its own its its own thing, but often like bleeds into the rest of the country, and the rest of the country kind of bleeds into it historically and like in the present as well. Um, so, you know, I I don't want to get too far back into the history. We'll be here all day, but recently, <laughs> like. Um, you know, poor. One of the big things to take away about um, right-wing organizing on the West Coast is that it kind of everything kind of bleeds east in a lot of ways. What I personally observed over um, just when I started covering this stuff in 2017 was there's um there there were a lot of people who use the west coast to test out what they wanted to do back east like nathan D'Amigo of identity europa he 
he helped organize this thing that happened in um, Berkeley in April 15th, uh, 2017, that where like the Oath Keepers showed up, all these militia groups like California State Militia showed up to this so-called free speech rally. A lot of this was, I mean, all of this was directly tied to Miley Yiannopoulos getting run the fuck out of Berkeley um, a couple of months prior to that. But what happened was, was that was um, a lot of these militia groups came, a lot of explicit white nationalist groups like Identity Europa came. There's this crew out of Orange County called Rise Above Movement. Well, I mean, they're kind of spread all around um, Southern California that all became really influential in white nationalist and far-right organizing across the United States afterwards. And Nathan D'Amigo was one of the people who organized Unite the Right. Um, people kind of... I don't like people shorthanding um, you know, events to the names of towns, but people will say a thing, still say, oh, Charlottesville, and... You know, you know what they're talking about, right? Um, basically, what happened was these a lot of these groups used Berkeley as a staging ground for about six months to practice, like doing what they eventually did at Unite the Right. At, you know, testing how far they could go. They're pushing boundaries. California has very strict. Um, laws about not just guns but different kinds of weapons so people really push the edge there and the thing about the pacific northwest by con kind of by contrast is that a lot of white nationalist organizings flowed through there for decades i mean kind of from the beginning like oregon was founded as a whites only kind of territory and yes, one hundred percent. That's a. I, I appreciate you bringing that detail up. Which is, uh, there's a historic. There are historical contingencies in place here that are really important. Yeah, you know, like the you you get if you were black and you lived in Oregon, they fine you and whip you, and you know, for every year you lived there that you didn't get out, they'd fine you and whip you a certain amount or something for a long time, but. Oregon's, uh, you know, the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Oregon, North Idaho, etc. Uh, they've got a more recent history that's really important to understand when you're talking about white nationalism, which is, um, there's a lot of different ideas about this, but one of the most famous ones I think was, uh, I think it was Butler, somebody, else, some historian's going to chew me out if I pick the wrong neo-nazi to eat credit them with the wrong like stupid plan but basically there's this thing called the northwest T territorial imperative where the idea was is that a bunch of white nationalists were going to move to idaho move to, to eastern washington move to rural oregon etc and try to encroach and encroach and encroach and event and build up compounds and build up armories and stuff and eventually like build up a critical mass and take over that chunk of the united states as you know a white ethno state and those kinds of people are still doing this like there's this there's this guy um that our outlet just named as one of the people who um toppled that monolith in um 
Atascadero, the you know those those meme monolith art installation things. The the neo Nazis who toppled that. One of them was this guy, a um, Ryan Sanchez, who goes by the handle Culture War Criminal on um, on his you know social media where he streams and stuff. Um, his uh, one of the things he keeps kept saying for on his live stream was stuff like, yeah, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to go move up to Oregon and, you know, start to work for our people and settle down and, you know, buy some land or something. They all kind of have this idea that they're going to do that. So when you see the white nationalist organizing up there, it is a different monster. It's, you know, I, I can't speak for the Midwest, I can't speak for the East Coast, but it is really its own thing with its own culture and its own kind of mentality behind it that you don't see other places. And uh, to to briefly uh, just just um, uh, to, 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 to briefly tack on to that, uh, I'm I'm cur- I'm just curious your take. I'm I'm familiar with in uh, uh uh with the sort of historical presence, especially in Southern California, of virulent like nasty Holocaust denial kind of anti-Semitism. And I know that groups like I'm well, speaking butcher. I'm probably gonna fucking butcher. I think the Institute for Historical Review, the Journal for Historical Review, like old anti-Semites that were you know a big deal for a while, but have sort of fallen into um less prominence recently prominent re- prominence recently do you see sort of the old elements of the like um west coast reactionary right diffusing into these newer like you mentioned identity you wrote these these groups that have been really proving themselves with violence in california before as you said thing events like unite the right well you know the the thing about it is that there's kind of a few strains in white nationalism like there's and you know i say white nationalism very broadly because you know i other people who research this don't you you know we we kind of go back and forth i i guess i should i guess i should say more the broader term people use instead of white nationalism is a specific explicit thing is white supremacist organizing because you know the militia movement is white supremacist but they're not always interested in carving out like ethno states for whites only and stuff like that they've got other concerns and other interests that are more immediate to them um but there's a few strains of there's a few strains of kind of different white eight supremacist organizing that i monitor and that i've kind of parceled out in my head you know there's these militia types there's the you know bonehead neo-nazi those those kids and um there's there's kind of the terrorgram the adam waffen types but then there's also like the kind of academic thing which you know bunches of different strains of white nationalists um they subscribe to this guy called Kevin McDonald, who wrote this big compl- pseudoscientific anti-Semitic tract um, called The Culture of Critique about Jewish people, just, you know, saying like, oh, well, they're, you know, it's just basically a thing to ethnically other Jewish people over like three books or something. 
and he is uh, McDonald. Uh, he's like a professor emeritus still at like uh, Long Beach, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, or, the uh, st- st- uh, the state Cal State Cal State Long Beach. Yeah, Cal State Long Beach, right? So you know that's that's all that that brand of anti-Semitism has always been there, and it's always been part of this larger milieu of like deeply reactionary politics that's come out of Southern California. Like um, my, I I mean, speaking from personal experience, like uh, my uh, great grandfather grew up in this town called, um, well, excuse me, my, my great grandfather worked there or because of the refinery at El Segundo. But yeah, we, my, my grandfather grew up in um, El Segundo which you know it's south of la um it's uh it, it was um the main hub for like the the main employers there were standard oil and a bunch of defense contractors and it was a sundown town so you you know if your your skin was the wrong color you couldn't be there after dark that's and that's kind of always been there and it's you know, there's there's people who have always articulated racism into these pseudo-academic or kind or other kinds of um, ways of defining racism and codifying it into like a semi-articulate philosophy or whatever. But it's always just been in the background in a lot of these places. You know, it's kind of a structural problem more than it's like. A philosophical one with ideological roots that you can trace or anything like that yeah it has a uh um it serves a particular purpose um in its in its particular time and place and yeah i think you speak very directly to how it's able to sort of i i see the i see this far right um ideology especially in the united states and especially in our modern moment as very generative um, it's easy. It's capitalizing on its ability to sort of shed shed its skin and take on additional adjacent forms. Um, yeah, I think that that's that was all very, very, very well said. By the way, <clears throat> appreciate that. Yeah, but you're asking more about you know what's the continuity of I I think what um you're getting at is like the suit and tie kind of pseudo academic brand of white nationalism and white supremacy, right? And yeah, I think yeah, I think you described that correctly. So the continuity of that has kind of gone from uh you know kind of like American Renaissance and like V-Dare and you know hate outlets like that, you know, these white nationalist propaganda outlets like that. Um it kind of filters from that to people like um Nick Fuentes and um, you know Patrick Casey of formerly of Identity Europa, and once um, Identity Europa kind of you know it tried to do this thing for a year or so called where they rebranded and called themselves American Identity Movement, and then that dissolved. Um, basically, those same people are still there. They're still doing the same thing. Um, uh, but it's kind of decentralized into 
the Nick Fuentes led America first Groiper movement where a lot of these, you know, very boring and awful and just mind numbing racist tracks kind of get boiled down into memes and then spammed and, you know, disseminated a bunch of like basically college Republicans. It's, um, it's, basically a vanguard movement to you know it, it basically takes the form of a vanguard movement in college republican groups and young republican groups to like you know make that the dominant political stance in um college republican chapters i think that's kind of a good segue uh into sort of you know most of us over the last couple of years have sort of been watching this movement, uh, this fascist movement, uh, sort of evolve um, from Charlottesville on. So I feel like the vast majority of leftists saw what happened at the Capitol on January 6th uh, coming. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that's probably a great place to start to kind of talk about where we're at currently and what to, what to expect moving forward. Um, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Well, um, let me just say that there were at least, I mean, I forget how many exactly, but there were at least two people, um, one Andrew Duncombe and two Baked Alaska who were at Unite the Right in Charlottesville in 2017, who were part, participated in storming the Capitol. Two people who marched in the deadly rally who were at the capitol direct line of continuity so what you can kind of extrapolate from that is that these people don't go away these people won't go away if they're not you know somebody like christopher cantwell who's in prison and he's completely deplatformed he's probably going away he's not going to be relevant for a while and I don't know if he'll ever be relevant again. Hopefully not. But the thing that you really have to understand is that there's a pattern to fascist movements like this. For years before Unite the Right, these people rebranded themselves. They, you know, got to the point where they could get glossy photos of Richard Spencer on Mother Jones and then they did this they did what they always wanted to do and planned to do and tested out in little ways where they'd have little free speech rallies and only attack a few unhoused people or they'd attack you know some queer kids on the street or something or they'd you know do things that do things that oh well you know this was just this one guy who showed up to the, to our event like we're washing our hands of jeremy christian you know uh who was this guy who went to a bunch of patriot prayer rallies in um portland and joey gibson the leader of patriot prayer said oh no i uh, we kicked him out of rallies when he no there's video evidence of him just being it's a few rallies before or in like 
it was part of his radicalization. And what Jeremy Christian eventually did was stab two people to death and almost killed a third one on a train in Portland after these three people intervened to, uh, in when he was harassing a, you know, a couple of young women of color. And what these movements do is they inch forward little by little they get they repackage their beliefs and they push themselves into spaces where they say well you know where they say here's who we are here's like we're just all about we're just all about our identity and our heritage or whatever their bullshit is and then they get liberals to agree to you know hear them out they on the one hand and then they get police to agree to let them have their little rallies on the other until they build enough power build enough recruitment and they can go out and do some kind of orgiastic violence and if the orgiastic violence works then they seize power which you know mussolini if they um if they don't, it's kind of like what happened after Unite the Right. A bunch of people got doxxed. A bunch of people lost their jobs. I mean, you know, justifiably so. They're fascists who, you know, committed horrible acts of violence. A bunch of them went to prison. And that's what we're seeing happening here. You know, Trump led this movement to build up... A, riled them up and riled them up and pushed all these things. I mean, there is a direct continuity between all of these Trump rallies and what happened on the 6th. They, they, push, they pushed the boundaries of how much violence they could do for years. And then, and they've plotted for years about doing this kind of violence. You know, they built a fucking gallows outside of the building right? right i mean do you think that uh sort of the federal response the what is it like 170 cases now all of all of these federal charges that can carry a maximum penalty up to what like sh shit 60 years in prison or something for some of these for the conspiracy charges and all this other stuff tacked on um do you think that's going to damage the movement in any way or is this going to continue just to be a galvanizing moment for the far right so it's both a damaging moment and a galvanizing moment because when fascists are allowed to do this kind of thing and they are able to flex their power um unchecked they often fail at it because it's not because fascism isn't a, a coherent ideology and it often doesn't have a coherent strategy or plan. What fascists do is they, you know, like I said, they have orgiastic, like these big orgiastic bursts of violence. And then, you know, you kind of think of it as like, say you've got a baseball bat with a bunch of spikes on it and you beat enough people where the some of the spikes fall off but you know you get to walk home with that baseball bat and glue more spikes on and maybe and after or enough of times 
going out and beating people with it, you know, you collect enough spikes and um, that that bat's even more deadly, right? So, like, I don't know. It's it's a hard it's hard for me to come up with an analogy on the spot here, but they build power. And the power they and power when you build power, a lot of it's like fragile, right? Like it's coalitions form and break, and you know people who would have been good movement leaders sometimes go to jail, or other things happen to them. And connections form and they break, but when fascists are allowed to do this unchecked, more of them succeed than they don't. It's kind of like you know letting. It's kind of like if you, it's, it is kind of like a virus, you know, if you don't completely eradicate the virus, it's going to come back. Like, you know, with polio, like polio was completely eradicated, but then, uh, you know, the U.S. started using polio vaccination statements to spy on people in Pakistan, and then polio started coming back because people didn't trust the vaccination stations. And they didn't, they didn't get vaccinated. And aha, it's back. So, you know, it kind of works like that. If you, it's fascists, fascists are always going to be in the background until we deny them the oxygen to exist. Yeah. And, you know, every time they do something, even if they fail, they're going to get stronger. Like, I've seen. You know, four years ago, I'd see Proud Boys and they would just be these middle-aged idiots in, you know, Fred Perry polo shirts, getting going around, getting drunk in public and like picking stupid fights with people. Now I see them in like Sacramento in the Central Valley and other places in California. And these guys have plates. These guys are training with guns. That wouldn't have happened if they'd been shut down when they should have been shut down, which was at the beginning. Yeah, toward the end of the Trump campaign, um, in Orla I'm in Orlando, and La Orlando's always had a little contingent of Proud Boys mm -hmm. um, that, like, the, the most that they had really done was try and disrupt DSA meetings. But the uh, um, they turned out um, in a in a for for those dorks like a pretty decent showing um for their central florida chapter and that uh yeah that that made my eyebrows jump up a little bit yeah i mean ask yourself this is like would it have been better if a proud boy like what's what's more dangerous or proud boys recruiting six like five four years ago when they didn't all they weren't all getting armed and getting armored and you know showing up in this really militant way with like giant knives and shit at rallies in california of all places or showing up with rifles in oregon or you know would have been more recruit uh, more dangerous to recruit them four years ago and there's going to be you know mm. more recruiting for these groups no matter what because they've got a grievance, they've got you know a ra they've got a figure for the racialized hatred in Kamala Harris, like they did with Obama, like you know the predecessors in the Tea Party did with Obama. So it's not going away, and 
it's going to get worse unless it's stopped. Like looking ahead to the next four years, right? We're looking ahead to the Biden administration. Um, we're seeing, I, you know, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a couple of um, like sort of parlor offshoot telegram chats and a lot of like interesting QAnon folks are sort of falling away from that conspiracy. Um, what do you think the far right is going to look like in the next couple of years? Have you taken some time to think about maybe how they regroup or or what, what recruitment's going to look like or, or how they might rebrand? I mean, you, you talk about fascism being sort of cyclical. Can we expect to see the same sort of cycle starting over now? I suspect so. So what happened after Unite the Right was this thing called the optics debate, which was an, a fa a, a debate within fascist movements where they said, okay, are we going to try to continue to look good and distance ourselves from this and rebrand and um, try to infiltrate the Republican Party and local politics and everything else we can and push our ideas onto them? Or are we going to go another route, which is called, which is often called vanguardism, which is to push things from the outside, which for fascists means terrorism. It means trying to accelerate the collapse of society, blowing up infrastructure, trying to overwhelm, um, trying to overwhelm the system, as they call it until it can't handle it anymore and it collapses, which is what um, groups like Adam often do. You know, there's people who are inspired by James Mason's siege is, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of an insurgency doctrine really. So what these people try to do, imagine themselves as being is like these people who will hide in the shadows, do these terrorist attacks and then basically be the little finger that flicks the first domino and then the rest fall and then they wait and they, they poise themselves all confidently and say aha now everything's collapsed we're going to come in and reorganize things our way and that's not just the explicit white nationalist groups now those kind of, those ideas trickled out into uh the boogaloo movement which was kind of a synthesis of um, the terrorgram accelerationist ideas, collapsing society, and kind of um, the like memeified uh, K board on 4chan, the weapons board, you know, that kind of fetishization of violence and in this hyper ironic, hyper masculine way, and um, kind of a synthesis of old school militia movement and ideas as well as that. So that happened all that all happened kind of in the shadows alongside um Nick Fuentes and the Groypers and the failure and the collapse the you know post American identity identity Europa Opa thing you know cuz Nick Fuentes is basically the leader of the entryists now and you know he might be going to jail maybe he won't but definitely a lot of the groypers are because they did a bunch of very illegal things uh, you know the ones that showed up to the capitol anyways and nick 
Fuentes is going on his live stream saying, well, if you're at the sixth, you should uh, you should delete, (laughs) destroy your phones, delete all the evidence saying that on air, (laughs) you know, but 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 what's really serious is that we're going to have I think we're going to see a parallel though not quite the same thing happening is people are going to struggle with these all of these fascist movements are going to struggle with do we try to participate um get what we want through the system of the american government or do we try to do this outside of it and every strain of belief is going to have this um have their own version of whether they it go from the inside or the outside and it's going to be much deadlier than it was during trump's presidency i think because there's more people radicalized there's more uh, there's just more people in the movement in general and you know like i said earlier about the virus thing like even though a lot of people fall off there was so many so many more people recruited to this that the ones that hang on in one way or another there's going to be more of them. Yeah, and, and liberalism comes in and uh, weakens the social welfare state in such a way to where it, it can both whip up antagonisms by just being in the opposition as well as through just its, like, uh, for lack of a better term, weak-handed approach to wielding social power and using it to build. Like a like a a movement of working people. Apologies, Mel. You're saying something. Oh no, I was just going to say you also get to point to the fact that they made it through the front doors of the Capitol. Yes. Right. Sort of the the sort of same galvanizing effect of well, we made it. You know, we proved that we could burn down a police station that we saw during the uprising last summer. You know, they can point to that and say we stood in the you know the Senate chambers and you know they ran for their lives. You know, and that. That is uh, going to make it extremely easy for for folks to to uh, sort of take maybe people who I I don't know I think about the folks who the dead enders of QAnon who are looking for something to hold on to. Um, all it takes is you know one militant fascist to say, well, hey, you know you could check this out, you know, and and it would wouldn't be that much of a stretch to see how that sort of moves in a more extreme direction in the future. We were in like the most sacredest place ever. <laughs> Fuck. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. That that was too funny. Anyways, apologies. <laughs> God, just absurd. Just absurd watching that happen on the six. And then, and it's just like, yeah, we're gonna over, we're gonna overthrow the government, and we're gonna come in, and we're gonna take the government back for Donald Trump. Bow your heads and let us pray. Take off your hat. It's it's time for Sunday school. It's just so alienating and strange to me and it was just wild wild footage yeah no it's uh that's kind of one of the things of that fascism is really good at is weaponizing unreality i mean there's so many things that i've filmed over the years and witnessed over the years now that people don't believe when i tell them and it's all true you know there's idiots dressed up in these weird costumes just fighting and fighting people 
dressed in all black with her faces covered in the streets like it's it looks cartoonish and that's kind of the point is to mythologize his violence and and so you can make people more ready to accept it because they have this distance in their minds where empathy is cut off spectacularize it make a spectacle of it yeah it is a little gita board in it i mean i think a lot about in sort of the absurdity of of say for example like the boogaloo boys in their you know hawaiian shirts and uh you know, wandering around. I mean, just even this last summer in Omaha when I was covering protests in Omaha, the sort of ambiguity of of, of the Boogaloo movement uh, made it really easy for, for multiple armed Boogaloo boys to chill out um, and work with some, you know, gain the sort of like trust of some protesters is what I saw, you know, even though most folks would regard that with suspicion, especially now, like, do you think the Boogaloo movement and is sort of positioning itself in distance to this stuff or as an alternative to it? So the Boogaloo movement was, uh, I like to say was because I think it's kind of, from from our outlet's analysis, it's kind of on its way out. Or at least that aesthetic and that philosophy behind it is on its way out. What the Boogaloo movement was, was kind of a purely accelerationist movement that was trying to be an entrist movement. It was, a, it was a bunch of assholes on K-boards on 4chan and 8chan who thought, let's wear Hawaiian shirts because that's... Um, it, because one, it's a it's a pun for big luau is a pun for or um, boogaloo because the search terms kept getting banned, and for two, the Hawaiian print is kind of a call is kind of a, um, it's it's kind of a uh, wink and a nod, uh, dog whistle to uh, Rhodesia camo print from the white separate you know the the white supremacist Rhodesian government they had this kind of floral looking camo print that a bunch of the Boogaloo boys fetishize and Boogaloo boys fetishize Rhodesia all the time on their internal chats um so what these guys were were people who weren't exactly that interested at least openly in white supremacy as much as they were interested in collapsing society and of course that's just as deeply racist it's just harder to parse if you you know if you don't understand settler colonialism because what these guys were were settler colonial fetishists like there were there was this one boogaloo boy i forget his name but he would go out to a bunch of protests in texas in the midwest and he had a pith helm this giant long elephant gun thing and his Hawaiian shirt, and he would film himself walking behind a bunch of Black Lives Matter protesters by about half a block, like just following them. Now, if that doesn't read as I'm hunting black people to you, then I don't know what to tell you. 
And that's basically the mentality of all of these guys, you know, to a certain degree. Like, obviously, there's idiots who are just idiot teenagers who got sucked into this and, you know, just like going on 4chan because they're edgy. But they, you know, these are all just people who consciously accepted a bunch of racist shit and then pretended it wasn't racist and then decided consciously let's pretend that we're in support of black lives matter because they're all getting abused by police so we can use that and try to provoke the situation um to the point where we can where police will fire on them with live rounds and then we can fire back and then we can start a huge conflict I, some of them were even thinking about shooting into crowds of Black Lives Matter protesters to get things started. Wow. So, yeah, that's, you know, that's who these guys were. It wasn't a totally coherent philosophy. It was just, I fetishize violence. I want everything to collapse. And I think I'm going to come out on top of it because I know how to go pew pew. Right. Um, speaking of the Boogaloo Boys, mm-hmm. your outlet recently leaked the chats from one of the Boogaloo Movement's largest Discord servers. Do you want to speak a little bit about what you found so far, if you've been going through them? Yeah. It's, um, so we released, uh, this giant, um, our researchers are pretty sure it's the, the biggest, um, hub of, the boogaloo movement that there was last year but we're not a hundred percent sure it was about two thousand people so we didn't you know say just maintain journalistic integrity and honesty and all that we like didn't say it was the biggest because we couldn't prove it but it probably was the biggest it was about two thousand people there were channels for bushcraft for exchanging firearms with each other which you know a lot of that was illegal there was channels for how to do diff- how to do things with radios like at, like small kill teams do with radios and stuff um just survival stuff and there were the main thing was that they didn't just have state chapters for i think it was 44 or 42 i don't remember states but they had regional chapters, which was which basically tells you that the their idea was okay. We're going to collapse society and carve things out based on these regions that we have in here, in our regional chats. So these guys were. I mean, if you've if you're familiar with how people on 4chan think and talk and you can kind of expect what that milieu was like. It was, Ew. yeah, it was deeply racist. It was deeply misogynistic. And I deeply regret that we haven't done enough as an outlet, um, yet on the Boogaloo movement's misogyny because it was its own kind of monster. I mean, uh, the, one of the things that, uh doesn't get emphasized enough with a lot of these boogaloo boys have been arrested and stuff is that they or you know even the ones that got famous was they were abusive monsters they a lot of the violence in their lives was towards the women in their lives 
we released an article that made a lot of them upset before this that was that where we you know basically did open source intelligence and found that duncan lemp the boogaloo boys martyr who was killed in a no lock no knock raid in uh, uh, march last year he had this tiktok account that was following thirst trap dancing videos from girls as young as like one of them was a sixth grader i don't know how old she was 11 12 but he was following oh this yeah so jesus christ yeah and the thing one of the things that doesn't get talked a lot about um in these 4chan spin-off communities and movements is that they normalize pedophilia to a great degree a really i don't mm. i shouldn't use the word great to a horrifying degree they really do and mm. you know i've talked i said before that the boogaloo movement was um it had didn't really have the most coherent ideology they just wanted to see shit collapse well mm. one of the parts of that was that they was when you get deep into it they say oh well we just want to kill tyrants well who's a tyrant oh well we just want to kill these cops who are oppressing us and taking away our second amendment rights and blah 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 of course they don't give a shit about ice or border patrol or anything like that even though right. there's right. literal concentration camps they never mentioned that they don't care about that but they said oh we want to kill these tyrant cops that are taking away our guns and stuff oh but we also want to kill pedophiles i wonder why they want to kill mm-hmm. and you know you see this a lot in every stream of reactionary thought is that they take they usually go to who can i who's somebody that's completely 100 percent morally objectionable somebody that i can't ever that you can't ever justify what they're doing ever and they go aha pedophile so let's label all of our enemies pedophiles the proud boys do it the religious right does it you know all of these movements do it and of course the boogaloo boys did it and so their whole meme was let's throw pedophiles into wood chippers or whatever and you know i've talked to them at QAnon rallies where they said well let's rev up some well me and the QAnon people don't see eye to eye on everything but we uh we all want to rev up the wood chippers and put them in you know QAnon rallies have been and and the uh the save the children and that part of the uh uh rooting out the pedophiles and uh the use of sex trafficking as a sort of a defense um is really silent this whole time and that is the <laughs> stuff that's really going to tick me off because it's absolutely bonkers how it has intermingled and interlocked with these right-wing organizations i've seen that stuff yeah. here firsthand at rallies in texas for the right wing i should say not for left-wing rallies and the the sort of presence and the messages that are there uh it, it's it's a menagerie of heavily armed people uh, people who are obsessed with QAnon conspiracies and also Falun Gong funded media, which I'm not even going to get into that. Well, I mean, what you're you're hitting the nail on the head, though, Stephen, because what uh, what I think makes me nervous about this is that the Save the Children stuff is what's been in some uh, in the too many uh, uh, on the ground interviews of QAnon rallies. 
um, that I've listened to at this point there. Uh, the thing that is concerning that concerns me the most is when the the interviewers, um, usually people who are there, you know, in an attempt to uh, pose some kind of a critique, but not to be antagonistic with their subjects, just to try and understand, you know, the who, what, where, when and why, you know, which is which, you know, which is I think is decent work. But then when they start meeting some people who are often working class, often people of color, often women um, uh, who just found uh, like, I want to protect children. Of co- Who doesn't want to protect children? And the, it gets wrapped up in this like larger, you know, discursive idea about defense of the family and stuff. But really what it is, is like, it's these so, like, you know, it's the parts of like soft cue and like the softer parts of these, you know, far right. And, you know, the ones, the groups that we used to define more as alt right, um, that allows for ripe recruitment spaces and grounds based off of, you know, uh, just as you were saying earlier, the, uh, um, the, this, how unbelievably inoffensive the enemy of this is. Of course, we, you know, of course, we want to protect children, like that sort of a thing. Well, the thing about all of that is, is that all right wing ideology kind of follows a couple of principles. One, it's that inequality is justified, and that is inherently justified. Necessary. And two, I want to hurt people and I will do and say anything to justify it so that's in order to make society accept the fact that I will hurt people. And that's exactly what all of this is. The QAnon shit, the, the Boogaloo boys, you know, the proud boys, all of these groups, these are just people who want to hurt people and they're doing everything in their power to make society let them so everything that they say everything they do is is a lie in theater constructed so that they can carry out their ultimate goal which is orgiastic violence to just you know eliminate everybody that they don't like uh to i appreciate uh the um sort of, you know, the, the broad strokes uh, way that you tap that off, because I think it relates to we're, uh, we're getting toward the end here. And I just wanted to ask um, first for people who are interested in examining just what you described, the sort of the, the like, yes, looking at sort of the, the spectacle of this variety of right wing far right groups and what they're doing, but who are also interested in maybe learn as a, as a way of exposing themselves to maybe what the political right is doing. And uh, also, what what do you think in particular, uh, what would you like to see happen in terms of the, uh, um, the sort of in the trenches work against the far right uh, research work that groups like you and others are doing? Um, uh, what would you like to see happen in the future? How would you like it to grow? How would you like it to change? If there anything, you know, any, anything that just comes to mind? Well, I think um, one of the biggest that one of the biggest projects that I I'm pretty open about now is that I think journalism as an institution needs to change. I think there's a lot of old, deeply racist rules and 
deeply sexist rules and assumptions in journalism that lead to things like both sidesing that lead to things like platforming people like Richard Spencer. You know, you kind of go, if you're a journalist, you are taught that, oh, well, we have to talk to everybody and we have to give everybody their fair shake. And, um, that'll just magically, um, that'll just magically let the truth come out. And sometimes that works but fascists explicitly understand that and game that. They spend all of their time that they don't on plotting and carrying out violence on optics, on public relations, basically. They, uh, they are specifically trying to game liberal media so that they can exist and do their, and do their violence. So journalists who want to cover this stuff, you can't, you cannot cover it the way you cover anything else. You can't have the same set of ethics where you say, oh, well, we have to reach these people for comment and get their side of the story. You have to, info we can't, we have to be open about who we are. We can't go undercover we can't lie about uh, things to infiltrate their spaces no you have to you have to infiltrate you have to do what anti-fascists do and what i think has to happen is that if you're going to cover this you have to have anti-fascist ethics or you can't cover it you shouldn't cover it you should be, you have you should have to be an anti-fascist before you're a journalist or else you're not you shouldn't cover it you're going to end up platforming them I mean, you're completely right. I've seen this firsthand uh, in my journalism where I had a scoop on a woman named Jenna Ryan who uh, attended the Capitol riot and the Capitol coup, whatever the hell you want to call it. And she was subsequently, after I released the article uh, that included her name among some other people in North Texas, uh, she was brought on a local news television station for an interview where they basically just softballed her a bunch of questions, gave her a platform, and allowed her to lie on television uh, without having done the research ahead of time to be able to even do the basic questioning of her claims. Uh, it's, it was ridiculous to watch. Um, and in terms of my journalism, anytime I've covered these folks, um, I think the first point you brought up is completely correct. You know, there's there was not really, in my view, a responsibility to respond to these people for comment if particularly right. they had been just posting all of these things on their own social media. That's what I call yes. telling on yourself. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's an obvious case with, you know, these people who told on themselves and participated in some violence at the Capitol, but they're outing themselves. I mean, I think what you're describing is perhaps even more intense of, uh, you know, doing the the forum searching and, and camping out and doing the sort of long-term investigation that uh, is necessary to identify people who perhaps are not telling on themselves, which is an increasing right. number of people, but probably, I mean, maybe you would know this much better than I would. It, to me, it seems like it's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the people that are actually out there. Of course it is. I mean, how many people voted for Trump this time around? After four years of this shit, after four years of seeing firsthand 
that there's concentration camps at the border and that there's you know public there's publicly available evidence that the person designing a bunch of those policies Stephen Miller is a white nationalist and that he subscribes to eugenics those people voted for eugenics all of them did we've got a bigger problem if either if either of you have any more thoughts about that point or Stephen or Abner if you have anything that you want to say before we go out like just fucking have at it um uh continue by all means i'll just uh, uh i'll be here yeah um was there anything else you wanted to ask me uh, maybe something that um i can ask is how do you um support this work that you do and how can people contribute to that if they're interested um so <laughs> well in our pin tweet on twitter um at lcrw news there's a uh, link to a cash app a paypal which is the same as our like tip line email and mm -hmm. um like a venmo which is the same as our twitter at <laughs> um and i've we've got a patreon um i'm trying to transition this whole thing from a sole proprietorship into a non-profit eventually but you nice. know patreon income's kind of my only incomes and i do this full time with um staff that i don't pay enough that freelance for me so um anything yeah just the more money uh, honestly the more money we get in one time and um other any kinds of donations that we get like i just take what i need to live and then i'm gonna try to pay my writers there's a decent amount with them the rest of the year you know i just want to get as much as we can out because damaging fascist movements is a moral imperative so i'd, I'd like to steven that sounds that. like that sounds like a very good uh uh non-profit model from this real rad magazine yeah we could maybe uh, talk that about that at a later point called protean <laughs> <laughs> that's what protean does steven and tyler uh i'm gonna i'm gonna jump in so i can blow up their spot for a second compliment them uh steven tyler and mel uh, uh don't pay themselves for editors and instead pay writers like i've as someone who's been published in protean and who doesn't get paid for a lot of things that i make they have a they have a growth model and a, an understanding of what they want to do that I think uh, just to go on the record as well um, Abner's project and Abner's uh, cadre that um, they're working with at the Left Coast Right Watches um, in, uh, in in the spirit of the written word you know you know similar but you know e even in its uh, even in the different goals besides the you know the art slash you know analysis slash politics magazine versus the uh, investigative journalism uh, the symbi I, th there's a symbiosis between the spirit of protean and the spirit of what y'all are doing and I think it's really important and so people should go um, support um, LCRW on uh, on Patreon to make sure that we can kind of keep this stuff going because it's, I, I think as Abner said, it's just going to get worse and we're going to need them. So. Yeah. Uh, and maybe one more question, uh, since you do have folks that work with you, Abner, mm -hmm. you know, if there are aspiring or existing anti-fascist researchers that are out there uh, and they might be interested in working with you, do you, 
you know, have a model for how you get folks to work with you? Or, you know, I, I'm guessing you may want to vet the people you're working with. I don't know how, how you consider operating that. Um, because, you know, in terms of my experience, the anti-fascist researchers that I'm familiar with, I don't even really know who they are. And I'm okay with that. Uh, as long uh, as their information is verifiable. Yeah. Um, as am I. I, yeah, we have a very strict vetting process, but, um, I do encourage people who are like, young journalists, student journalists, um, just journalists in general who want to work with us. I, um, do, I do want to work with more people and expand the staff and just have better regional coverage. But, you know, if you think you can do this kind of work, we'll talk, just DM me or email me and we'll talk, but you should know that it's very dangerous work. I, have a loaded gun on my desk because I've been doxxed. I have body armor. I have to do a bunch of cybersecurity shit. It's there's a lot of risk involved in this. So yes, I think that's perhaps something that is is worth emphasizing a bit more. I'm glad you brought that up. It's something that uh, is definitely par for the course but perhaps does not get emphasized enough. Uh, and it's, it's implicit in everything that you've said uh, in terms of the, the folks that you're researching wanting to commit violence as sort of a base desire. Um, yeah, it's, it, it does seem like, you know, not only is that a main concern, but other concerns, which I won't even get into in terms of just your safety and, and what, that could, uh, what that could do, what your kind of work could do uh, in terms of attracting the kind of people that might want to cause you harm. So, yeah, I mean, I think if people do not appreciate that, that they should and um, should seriously consider that sort of trade-off uh, if they want to get into this type of work. Not that they shouldn't, and not that that shouldn't be a total discouragement, but yeah, it's it's not fun in games, extremely. And mm. your work uh, seems very serious, and, and I just have to send you my regards. It's... Um, you know, one thing to write an occasional article, but uh, another thing to sort of do this as a practice. So I salute you, sir. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, not everyone can be like me and Abner, me bravely writing about video games and Abner uh, covering the far right <laughs> and uh, putting, putting, them putting, <laughs> put, uh, me writing about video games and psychoanalysis and Abner putting themselves in harm's way. Um, Abner's from Left Coast Right Watch. They're a Bay Area, California-based news website. They cover politics. They cover extremism in politics. And uh, uh, they cover politics. They cover extremism on uh, the right. And they're a... Uh, um, they're a... a a, a, a group, they're a group that exists for the public good, so that means they're reader-supported. Um, so go to patreon.com slash lcrw um, or uh, follow them on Twitter at LCRW News um, to make sure you keep on top of this stuff as we enter in the hell that is 2021. Abner, uh, thank you very, very much for being here for this great conversation. We really appreciate it and we support you in everything that you and your uh, uh, cadre is doing over there. Thank you. It's glad to be on. Thanks again for tuning in to Protean Pirate Radio. We appreciate you taking the time to listen to us tonight. 
If you love what you're hearing and would like to support us as we navigate the uncharted waters of our dystopian present, please consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash protean pod. Until next time.